If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 29. This morning we'll be in verses 1 through 30 of this chapter. Um, Some of you will remember back, well, some of you probably have notes for this. Back on December 4th of last year, we were in this very same passage. Um, We didn't dive into the details then. Instead, we considered how Jacob's pursuit of a bride typifies Christ Jesus. Jacob was sent by his father to secure a bride. As such, he typifies the Son of God who also was sent by his father to secure his bride. We just sang about how through that wondrous love. Um, We also see Jacob willing to pay that high price. And so he endures till the end. Same goes for Christ Jesus, who paid an even higher price, and he endured till the painful end. So although we considered this passage four months ago, um, we return here this morning. We'll consider this passage more in light of the Jacob narrative. We'll we'll look more at the context, more at the details than what we did before. Um, The Jacob narrative, as you know, begins in chapter 25 and continues on, and we're right here in the middle of it. And as we consider Jacob, What we see here is that God is transforming Jacob. Jacob once acted like a child of the devil, like with the seed of the serpent, but now we see in his life he's being transformed. We can say in our new covenant language to be like Christ. Remember, Jacob was a manipulator. He was a deceiver. He stood before his father and he lied to him, taking advantage of his father's weakness. Also taking advantage of his brother's impulsiveness to get what he wanted, to get what he so desired that he thought he was entitled to. And now we will see him. He's been sent on his way to escape his brother's wrath and also to find a bride. But in chapter 28, this is a while back we saw this, God sought him out. God came to Jacob sought him out and promised to bless Jacob. God appeared to Jacob, blessed him. And in chapter 28, we see for the very first time in the book of Genesis, we see Jacob as a God-fearing man. And as we'll see this morning, Jacob, the one who was formerly a deceiver, is now able to endure deception. He'll be on the receiving end this time as his uncle deceives him into marrying Leah instead of Rachel, whom he loved. Although the text does not say this, this may be God's way of disciplining Jacob. Remember, Jacob sinned against his family, against his very own flesh and blood, deceived them. And we know from from Hebrews 12 that God disciplines his children. So if this is the case, the discipline is fitting. Because Jacob deceived his own flesh and blood, and now he will be deceived by his very own flesh and blood. So let's go ahead. We're going to read the concluding verses of this chapter. I'm going to read verses 20 to 30, and then I'll pray for God's help this morning. And just remember, as we are working through this text, we're going towards the Lord's Supper. We will be partaking of the Lord's Supper this morning. So I pray through God's word, our hearts will be prepared for that mill. So let's look at Genesis 29, picking up in verse 20. 
So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Jacob, I'm sorry, so Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. This is God's word. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are privileged to come before you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom the Holy Spirit has raised us up to new life. So we come to you this morning in Christ. And I pray this morning that you will give us the strength to comprehend and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I pray that we would know just how wondrous this love is. Infinite love poured out upon finite creatures through faith alone in Christ alone. And we know that you are able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask and think. Therefore, I pray, I pray this morning that you will fill us with your spirit. Work in us both to will and to do for your good pleasure. Help us to live lives that are pleasing in your sight. I pray the same for our friends, our brothers and sisters at Harvest Baptist Church. Pray for Jonathan as he preaches your word. I pray that you will speak through him. Pray that their congregation would be strengthened. I pray for their evangelistic endeavors with First Baptist South Houston as they will, Lord willing, go out this afternoon and try to reach the people in their community. I pray that you'll bring forth fruit from their labors. Help them to continue to labor well. And so I pray for their congregation and I pray for ours. I pray that we would make much of Christ, our Savior. 
Help us and keep us in your love, O God, I pray. And I pray this in no other name but Jesus Christ, his blessed name, through whom we are saved. Help us to see your glory, to see your great love for us. And I pray that through this text, we would be reminded of Christ. Once again, it's in his name we pray. Amen. So as we look here at Genesis 29, 1 through 30, it's one story, one short story, but I've divided it into two sections. It's in your worship guide if you want to look. The first section is found in verses 1 through 14. I've labeled this section the joyful encounter. Things are good. Uh, Jacob meets his family. They rejoice, so to speak. The second section, verses 15 through 30, is the deceptive exchange. So we have the joyful encounter as Jacob sees his family. He's greeted by his family, welcomed. And then after the seven-year period of labor, we see Laban's deception as he takes advantage of Jacob. And from this passage, we will see, we'll focus on two themes. We'll focus on Jacob's transformation and his endurance. So while Jacob is a transformed man, we'll be reminded as we consider Genesis 29 in light of the greater context that his transformation is gradual. It's a process. But as a transformed man, we'll see Jacob here able to endure his uncle's deception. So those are the two themes we'll consider, transformation and endurance. Other labels we could use here, progressive sanctification and perseverance. So that's the idea. Those are the themes that we will be considering this morning. So now that you have an idea, you have the plan, let's go ahead and jump into verse one. So look at verse one of chapter 29. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. So this right here connects us back to the previous events. Jacob, he's on his journey. Really, we see Jacob at the end of his journey, but he's been on this journey. Remember, his father sent him on this journey to go to Laban to find a wife. In chapter 27, the, the, the infamous tell, the infamous account of Jacob deceiving his father and his brother, he steals his brother's blessing. But while God did not cause Jacob to deceive his brother and his father, it was in this way that God will fulfill his promise to bless the younger instead of the older. Remember, whenever the boys, the two twins were in um, Rebekah's womb, God said, I will bless the younger. This is the one I love. I mean, we see that in scripture. God loves the younger, not the older here. And so God doesn't make Jacob deceive his brother. He doesn't say, he doesn't put some kind of idea in his mind or in his heart, say, hey, you ought to go deceive him. No, God is not the author of sin, but God will fulfill his purposes through it in spite of Jacob's sin. And so Esau was not content with God's purposes. He was not content to be the one that did not receive the blessing. And so he was outraged, sought to kill his brother 
His mother knew about this. Jacob's mother and Esau's mother, they, she knew. So she goes to Isaac, and instead of telling Isaac about Jacob's murderous rage, she convinced Isaac that he must not, that Jacob must not marry a Canaanite wife. She convinced Isaac that Jacob cannot do what Esau has done, and therefore Jacob was sent on this journey that we see him on here in verse 1 of chapter 29, and now he's at the end of the journey. This probably took him about a month or so to complete, and now he has come to the land of the people of the east. And as he comes here in verse 2, we see he, he sees a well. He sees a well in a field, and then he sees three flocks of sheep lying beside it. They're waiting to receive water from this well. And then we see at the end of the verse, the stone on the well's mouth was large. Water wells ought to spark a connection throughout the book of Genesis. We've seen that water wells have been a source of conflict as well as a source of blessing. Of course, we understand the blessing side, receiving water. Um, Hagar, Ishmael, when they're dying of thirst, God opens Hagar's eyes to see a well of water for her and her son to be refreshed. But then we have Abraham and Isaac. They both had conflict with Abimelech over water wells. If you remember Abimelech's men, what would they do? They would put dirt into these water wells, stopping them up, contaminating them. But then we also saw Abraham's servant. He found a bride for Isaac at a water well in the same region, perhaps at the same water well. And it'll be here where Jacob will meet his future bride. But before we get to their meeting, let's look at verse 3 to help us understand the, the customs, the culture of the day. When the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well, and they would water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. So the shepherds here, they would all wait on one another. They would then roll the stone away, water their flocks, then place the stone back on the well. The stone was there, why? Well, to keep the water from being contaminated. And while it's possible, it's possible that the shepherds waited because they needed help removing the stone, I would say it's much more likely that they had some sort of covenant or contractual agreement here. Uh, more on that to come when we get to verse 8. So upon arriving at this well and seeing these shepherds in verse 4, Jacob asked them, my brothers, where do you come from? And it just so happens that they're from Haran. If you were in Clint's class um, that he'd been teaching through Esther, Clint had this list of what he called so-called coincidences that you would see in the book of Esther because they don't have God did this, God did this, but you see so many coincidences or put them in air quotes there. I don't know how many did you end up with, 28 or so? 28 coincidences. But this list of coincidences, as he noted, was really a list of God's providence. God orchestrating all of these events in the life of Esther. Well, here we have coincidences. Think about it. Jacob, he comes to this well. There happen to be shepherds here. Where are they from? Haran. Who lives in Haran? His uncle does. And then he just so happens to say, hey, do you know Laban? And of course, they know him. 
And on top of that, one more coincidence, Rachel, Laban's son, just so happens to be coming to the well with Laban's flocks. And so here they are. Here's the setup. He finds these shepherds. Hey, where are you guys from? Well, they're from his uncle's land, from Haran, which is in Padan Aram, which is where he was sent to. And hey, do you know my uncle? Do you know Laban? Yes, we do. And it just so happens that his daughter is on the way here. But prior to her arrival, Jacob's going to question their current practices. Now, bring this to your attention because it comes back into play later. Jacob doesn't understand the customs of their land. He's a foreigner. He's not from there, right? So he doesn't understand the customs. So look, in verse 7, he says, Behold, it is still high day. It's high noon. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together, water the sheep, and go pasture them. I find it pretty humorous that Jacob comes here. They don't know Jacob from Adam, but yet he's instructing them just minutes after he arrived on how to shepherd their flocks. Now, maybe they should have listened to him, because as we'll find, Jacob's a pretty successful shepherd, but, but nonetheless, he comes in here basically instructing them, hey, you should go do this. And their reply in verse 8 says, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled away from the mouth of the well, then we water the sheep. So covenants over water wells were actually pretty typical in the ancient Near East. We saw covenants with Abraham and Isaac with Abimelech over water wells. So it's no stretch from the context of Genesis to see this as some kind of covenant agreement or contract, contractual agreement between these shepherds. And in this agreement, all the shepherds would gather together, they would roll the stone away, they would water their flocks, and then they would go. But Jacob shows himself to be ignorant to their customs and their practices. I bring this to your attention because Jacob will also be seen ignorant of their marital customs. When we get to verse 26, we'll see Laban telling Jacob, I mean, withholding some very important information, mind you, but telling him, hey, I can't marry off the the younger before the older. So Jacob, he's ignorant to their practices, ignorant to their customs. I bring that up because we will see Jacob here as a foreigner who does not know the customs of the people. And we see that here and we'll see that there. And so when Rachel arrives, Jacob, he'll roll the stone away and he'll water the flock. Look at verse nine. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherdess. So Rachel comes, she's a shepherdess. And then as Laban, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban in verse 10, his mother's brother, And the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Some commentaries I was reading said that Jacob has this superhuman strength. He's excited, he sees Rachel, and now this young, vigorous man is rolling the the stone away. Could that be? Sure. Um, I tend to lean more on the side that Jacob was ignorant of their customs, which he was. I mean, he, he goes and does this on his own. But the passage doesn't tell us what the response was from the shepherds. Were they agitated with him? Did they thank him for removing the stone? It's not what happens. 
because the focus changes. Notice here, Jacob, he sees Rachel and he zeroes in on her. No more mention of the shepherds. I mean, Jacob wouldn't have cared anyways, probably, if they thanked him or if they rebuked him because he sees a pretty lady. He's looking for a wife and he has laser-like vision for Rachel. And as we see in verse 11, then Jacob kissed Rachel. This would be a familial kiss. He weeps aloud. He's overjoyed to see her. In verse 12, Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And then she, I would say she's overjoyed. She runs off and tells her father to report the news. And then Laban, as soon as he heard the news, he heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son. He ran to meet him and he embraced Jacob, kissed him and brought him into his house. So everyone is overjoyed by this encounter. Jacob is overjoyed. Rachel is overjoyed. Laban is overjoyed. And so we see here Laban embracing him, bringing him in. And then at the end of verse 13, Jacob told Laban all these things. I'm sure there are some things in scripture that you find that are generic or general, and you would really like to know the details. What are the things Jacob told Laban? We don't know. Did he tell Laban how he took advantage of his brother's impulsiveness and stole his birthright? Did he tell Laban about stealing Esau's blessing and Esau's desire to murder him? Did he tell Laban about his parents sending him away to preserve his life and to find a wife? I would say it's possible, probable, that he told him about finding a wife. But did he tell Laban about God appearing to him on the way and promising to bless him and to be with him? Did he tell Laban that God promised to be with Jacob to bring him back safely to the land of Canaan? Did he tell Laban about Abraham and Isaac and about the promises that had been made to them? How much did he tell them? How much did he say? We don't know. But as we see in verse 14, Laban says to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Laban acknowledges that Jacob is his kinsman. Later on in this passage and in ensuing passages within this Jacob and Laban narrative, we'll see that this is true in more ways than one. One commentator noted, Jacob and Laban are cut from the same cloth. Jacob, deceiver. Laban, deceiver. We'll see that. But anyways, what we have here is this joyful encounter. Laban receives him in and Jacob now stays with Laban for a month. So we have Jacob. He was sent by his parents to find Laban and he did. Connecting this with the previous chapter, we can say that God has brought him safely to this place. God told Jacob in 28:15, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And God has certainly done that. But as we see here, or as we don't see here, Jacob, he doesn't acknowledge God. He doesn't acknowledge God's presence with him. 
that could have been left out of this passage. But in chapter 24, it's been a while since we've been there. But in chapter 24, Abraham's servant is sent to go find a wife for Isaac. He's at a water well. May have been the very same one. He prays to the Lord to, to, to bless him as he is looking to prosper his journey. And whenever God brings Rebekah to him, what does he do? He thanks the Lord. He worships God. We don't see that with Jacob. That doesn't mean Jacob didn't thank God or acknowledge God. We don't know. But I think it's pretty telling here that in chapter 24, we have a very similar episode. And there we see worship and thanksgiving. Here we do not. But what we will notice in Jacob's life from chapter 28 onward is his gradual transformation. At the end of chapter 28, which is merely weeks prior to him arriving here in Haran, we see Jacob for the first time as a God-fearing man. And as we'll see throughout his life, there is evidence of real change. He was encountered by God and his life has been changed. However, he still remains in this body of death, in the flesh, which is resistant to the spirit of God. And this is true of us all. For those of you who have been born again, who've called upon the name of the Lord, who've confessed Jesus as Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you too in this life remain in this body of death. The remnants of the old man still reside in you. But God is doing a work in you. He's transforming you from one degree of glory to another. But this is a gradual process. From one degree of glory to another. It's not instant. It's not all at one time. That's why non-believers see the church and say it's full of hypocrites. We're not finished products. We are gradually being transformed into the likeness of Christ. I like how Calvin explains our sanctification process. He says, none of us is capable of running swiftly on the right course while we remain in the earthly confinement of our bodies. Indeed, most of us are so oppressed with weakness that we make little progress, staggering, limping, and crawling on the ground. None of us will move forward with so little success that we will not make some daily progress in the way. So let us fix our eyes on the goal with sincerity, aspiring to that end neither foolishly congratulating ourselves nor excusing our evil deeds. The Christian life is one of progress, but this progress is often very slow because we are so weak. While God could have completely removed all our sins at once, he pardoned our sins but while he could have removed this sinful flesh from us all at once, he will not do so until we're free from these mortal bodies. 
when the mortal becomes immortal, when the perishable becomes, I'm sorry, when the imperishable, no, when the perishable becomes imperishable, on that day, we will be freed from sinning. But as we see this progress being made, it's all to his glorious grace. It's not because of you who run or you who will, it's because of God. God does this work in us. And as we see in scripture, the Christian will progress in holiness. God will transform us to be like Christ. But here's one of our problems when it comes to our progress in the Christian life. This is a problem that you and I have. We begin to look at others and we compare ourselves to others. And this typically goes one of two ways. We either become discouraged by our lack of progress or we become proud of our progress. We compare ourselves to others. We become discouraged because, man, I'll never be like him. I can't, I'll never be there. Or I look at someone else and say, ha, I got this thing figured out. I wouldn't say it like that, of course, because I'm too too holy for that. But I look at someone else and I have a false sense of pride because I'm clearly doing better than you are. I'm not doing like that person. I actually become like that Pharisee who says, thank God I'm not like him. I do this, I do this, I do this. When the man who went home justified was the one who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. When we look at others, our focus is in the wrong place. Instead of bearing with one another as we've been called to, encouraging one another on to godliness, we use one another in ways that are unhealthy and actually very destructive. Our focus must be on Christ, for we are sanctified. We're transformed by beholding his glory. We're not transformed by looking at one another or looking at our own lives in comparison to one another. You've got the wrong standard if we're doing that. We must encourage one another to look to Christ, to keep our eyes on the prize. And in a way, we have an illustration of that in the second half of this narrative. Jacob, he's going to be deceived, yet he's able to endure because his eye is on the prize. However, his eye was on an earthly prize, which can only motivate temporary endurance. But our prize is not temporary. For our prize is Christ, the eternal Son of God. Let's turn our attention back to the text. Go to verse 15. At this point, we've seen at the end of verse 14, Jacob has been with Laban for a month, and now in 15, he's been there for this time. He's been there for this month, and most likely he's a hard worker. He's not a freeloader. That's why Laban says to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? I mean, Laban realizes it's not right for Jacob to work for free. Yes, he's family, but Jacob, I'm mean, sorry, Laban doesn't want to take advantage of Jacob, at least not yet. You know the story. It's just interesting when we see Laban up front and then we know what happens seven years from now. But anyway, so Laban says, you're my kinsman. You can't serve me for nothing. 
tell me what shall your wages be? So he asked him to name his price, and Jacob does. In verse 18, we see Jacob telling him at the end here, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Like Jacob, Rachel is the younger sibling. And as we see at the beginning of verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel. Don't try to go in and dissect what type of love this is. Well, we'll get off track there. He's only known her for a short period of time, but it's helpful to notice his eye is on her. This is the one that he wants. Jacob loves Rachel. He has a strong attraction to her. He negotiates to give seven years of his life for her. And Laban, being no fool, agrees to this deal. This is a good exchange for him. That's why we see in verse 19, Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So that's the deal. The wages have been negotiated. And as we see in verse 20, Jacob served Laban for seven years. And these days seem but a few because of his love for Rachel. He loved Rachel, not Leah. Leah, as we see here, was the older daughter. Leah's eyes were weak, most likely being that that in Jacob's sight, whether her eyes were soft or in Jacob's sight, she was not attractive. But Jacob saw Rachel as beautiful in form and appearance, and he loved her. And then he serves for seven years, and these days seem but a few because of his love for her. His eye was on his bride-to-be. Therefore, he endured the seven years of service, shepherding. And because his eyes were fixated on the prize, he was able to endure, and these years passed by him quickly. And after the seven years were over, he goes to Laban in verse 21, and he says, give me my wife. So he's asking for the wife, the one he's been working for, Laban gathers the people together. They have a a feast. Most likely, this is a wedding feast that will last a week. The marriage being consummated on the first day in the evening, and then this whole week is the, the wedding feast. But then as we see in verse 23, but in the evening, he, being Laban, took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. How does this happen? I thought Jacob served seven years for Rachel and now he's deceived into marrying Leah? This is a crazy turn in this narrative. I mean, I would say if we were reading it for the first time, we would not expect this to happen. Everything has been too good for this to come. This is such a shocker. And we really don't have much detail here. So many unanswered or unanswerable questions here. For instance, did Laban plan to deceive Jacob all along? I tried to read like over and over what, what he said to, to Jacob over and over when he said, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man in verse 19. I was like, is there room for him to say, no, I was really meaning Leah. And I, I, I was like, surely, is there some way that Jacob misunderstood? Was there any way? No way. There's no way. So did Laban, seven years ago, intend to do this? Did he leave out important details? Did he forget to mention the customs of his people? Because when Jacob approaches him, 
We see in verse 26 that he applies to custom. He says, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Remember, Jacob, he's a foreigner. Yes, he's been here for seven years, but where has his focus been? It's been on Rachel. His focus has been on her. He's been expecting Rachel, not Leah. And so Laban appeals to this custom. So was this Laban's plan all along? Or was this just a last minute, hey, I can't do this. I've been talking to my friends, my buddies in this feast, and yeah, they're right, I can't do this. Well, regardless of how it happened or when Laban decided to do this, Laban takes advantage of Jacob and he will marry off both of his daughters and he'll receive seven more years of service from Jacob. In verse 27, he says, complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. So Laban will give his other daughter, Rachel, to Jacob, but not without trickery, not without deception. He will get another seven years of labor out of Jacob. We don't know when he decided to do this, but we know he did it. Another unanswerable question. What role did Leah play in all of this? Did she know about this arrangement between Jacob and Laban? Was she deceived? Or was she secretly in love with Jacob and so she was willing to go along with the trickery? Or maybe she was lied to in the beginning about the arrangement. Maybe she thought that Jacob was actually going to marry her. We don't know. But what we do know is there will be conflict in Jacob's household that will arise from this arrangement. There will be jealousy between the sisters. And this jealousy will will characterize the next chapter as we look in chapter 30. I mean, what would you expect? Jacob marries two sisters and he loves one and he doesn't love the other. I mean, look at verse 30. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And then in verse 31, which we'll get to in a couple weeks here, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated. What do you expect besides tension? Another unanswerable question. Where was Rachel during the wedding feast? Maybe Rachel and Leah were both unveiled during the the feast. Maybe she was making preparations for the feast. Maybe Rachel was complicit in the deception. Maybe her dad deceived her at the last minute. We don't know. But what we do know is Jacob does not realize anything. He doesn't realize he's been deceived until the next morning. So whatever's going on, it must have seemed normal to him. Or maybe he wasn't paying attention. Another unanswerable question, how on earth does Jacob not realize that it was Leah until the next morning? Was he drunk? Maybe, but we don't know. Was he drugged? Maybe, we don't know, unlikely. Was it pitch black in their tent so he didn't know any better? Well, I would say this, the customs of their day were likely much different than ours. We have very loose standards when it comes to dating. So it's likely, as one commentator notes, that Jacob had no physical contact with them beyond a familial kiss. 
And when Leah was given to Jacob, she would be wearing a veil to cover her face. So even those soft eyes are invisible. Lots of unanswerable questions. But the point of this text is not to cause speculation. And I apologize if I've caused you to have speculation and miss what's happening here. The purpose of this text is to show us that Jacob will end up with two wives and two maidservants through whom God will make Jacob exceedingly fruitful. As we see in verse 24, Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. In verse 29, Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. And so, if you recall, when God appeared to Jacob back in chapter 28, he promised to make Jacob's offspring numerous. Numerous as the dust of the earth. It's the same promise made to Abraham and to Isaac. And in the next section, in verse 31 of 29, we will begin to see that promise being fulfilled to Jacob through Leah, her maidservant, through Rachel's maidservant, and through Rachel. And this reminds us that no amount of trickery, no amount of deceit, no amount of cunning, no amount of foolishness or any manifestation of sin will prevent God from fulfilling his promises to Jacob. Even Jacob's polygamy, which we'll consider in a couple weeks, that will not stand in the way of God's promise fulfillment. Remember, God is faithful and true. Therefore, he will do as he says he will do. That is something we should always remember. Take heart in that. And here we're reminded that that Laban's deception will not prevent God from fulfilling his purposes. And while we are certainly reminded of God's covenant faithfulness all throughout the Jacob narrative, I want us to key in on Jacob here and his endurance. Although he was deceived He stayed the course. Think about Jacob, why Isaac sent him to Laban. Jacob was sent to Laban to find a wife. That was his mission. Yes, there's the other part about him fleeing from his brother's wrath, but that's not alluded to at all here. Jacob's mission as seen in this passage was to find a wife. It's not to get embroiled in family conflict or family drama. I mean, just notice how Jacob responds to Laban. Jacob confronts him, but he doesn't bite back in retaliation. We were reading this passage last night, and one of our boys, I won't name who, said, because I asked, like, what would you do? He said, I'd fight him. We're not teaching that in our house. But, um, but notice, Jacob does not do that. He doesn't seek to fight Laban. He endures Going back to verse 25. In the morning, behold, it was Leah. Jacob sees it's Leah in the morning, and so he goes to Laban. He says, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban doesn't address the deception. Instead, he justifies himself by appealing to his custom. It's not so done in our country to marry off the younger before the older. And as we see here, Jacob, the deceiver, is now on the receiving end, receiving end 
of Laban's deception. He worked so hard to get what he wanted, to receive the bride whom he loved. And now Laban deceives him. Then he renegotiates a deal with Jacob. But before we look at the new terms and we see Jacob's response to these new terms, let me ask you this. How would you respond if you were in Jacob's shoes? Maybe you've been in similar situations where you've waited so long to get what you wanted, but you didn't get it. Maybe as a child, you waited all year for Christmas or for your birthday and you're expecting a certain gift. When that day came, you didn't get what you wanted. Maybe you went to college, then you went to grad school. You worked so hard to get the job you wanted and then you didn't get the dream job. Maybe you raised your children in the ways of God, but they did not turn out the way you expected. Maybe it's a dream house, a dream vacation, a spouse, or even the perfect spouse. What is it that you want? And what do you do when you don't get what you want? Let's look at Jacob. Look at his response here to Laban's new terms. In verse 27, the terms are this. Complete the week of this one. So complete the bridal week, the wedding feast, and then we'll give you the other also. The we being maybe Laban and his wife or the whole family will give you the other being Rachel. And this is in return for serving me another seven years. So complete this week, then you can have Rachel for seven more years of labor. Now, some of you might be tempted to feel bad for Jacob. Before we look at his response, one more thing. You might be tempted to feel bad for him. He's had the wool pulled over his eyes. Yes, he's been taken advantage of. He's been deceived. But don't feel sorry for him. He deserves much worse. This might hurt a little, but it is better to be disciplined by the Lord than to be cast out of the household of God. But in the case that this is not God's discipline, although I would argue there's too many parallels to Jacob's deception of his father and brother, but in the case this is not discipline, it's better to be taken advantage of by man than to be a stranger in the household of God. I pray that you desire God more than you desire to not be taken advantage of by man. Sometimes we can be so consumed with being wronged that we actually care more about ourselves and our reputation than we care about our standing before God. In this case, Jacob does not complain. He doesn't even fight back or accuse Laban of wrongdoing. Jacob actually does what Laban tells him to do and he receives his bride. He's taken advantage of and he endures. He stays the course. He doesn't fight the deceiver. Does that sound like Christ? taken advantage of, deceived by, and he's betrayed, but yet he stayed the course. Jacob stays the course. Look at verse 28. Jacob did so. After Laban told him to do this, Jacob did so. He completed her week. And then in verse 30, we see at the very end that he served Laban for another seven years. He endured the wrongdoing. He did not complain when he didn't get what he wanted. Instead, he kept his eye on the prize. In this case, the prize was Rachel. 
Rachel was always the prize for Jacob. Therefore, he was able to endure 14 years of labor in exchange for her hand in marriage. He could endure suffering and hardship because he was motivated. He saw the end goal. How much more can the Christian endure suffering and hardship by looking to the goal? By pressing on toward the goal, of the, up, the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Where's your focus? To whom are you looking? As Christians, we don't merely look to Christ and endure. We endure in Christ. We persevere in Christ. For the Christian, you most likely will be mistreated. You will be faced with some sort of suffering because no servant is greater than his master. Christ suffered, and as Barry read earlier, we've been called to suffer unjustly. And it's not as though we're called to suffer for the sake of suffering. We suffer as a reminder that Christ is enough. In the case of Jacob, the suffering he endured surely reminded him that that Rachel was worth it. Jacob endured for an earthly prize. And as we'll see in the next chapter, Jacob's earthly prize was a far cry from the prize of being Christ's bride. We can see here that in the end, he endured because of his love for Rachel. He valued Rachel. And for the Christian, we can endure all things because Christ is worth it. Jesus Christ is enough. And because Jesus is enough, because he is worth it, he's of infinite worth, infinite value, we can look forward to the day when we will dine with him for all eternity. And we can endure no matter what may come our way because he is worth it. He is enough. He's greater than any earthly prize for he is of infinite value and worth. If you lost everything, would you be able to say, I have everything? You've lost it all, but you can say, I have Christ. And if you can say that, you can say, I have it all. So this morning, I call you to look to him, to keep looking to him, to delight in him, and to keep delighting in him. Don't be distracted by earthly prizes. Don't veer off course and pursue the things of this world. Fix your gaze upon Christ Jesus and keep looking to him. In a few minutes here, we'll reflect upon Christ through the Lord's Supper. We'll consider that day which lies ahead when we will feast with him for all eternity. And as we partake of the table, I pray that this truth is confirmed in your heart. That Christ Jesus is enough and that you will endure to the end. Before we get to the table, let's take a moment and pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I do pray that your spirit will work in our hearts to where we would see the prize, the prize of Christ. 
being the bride of Christ, being of more worth than anything we can attain in this life. Help us to look to Christ to endure. And I pray that you would keep transforming us to be like Christ. I pray that we might desire that. So as we come here to the table, I pray that that truth would be in our hearts. So help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So earlier, we considered how Jacob is a transformed man. He's confronted by God. God revealed himself to Jacob, and Jacob was transformed into a God-fearing man. And throughout the Jacob narrative, we'll see a man who grows in his faith, who worships the Lord. We also see a man who remains in the body of death. Chapter 31, we'll see Jacob flee from Laban in a foolish manner. Chapter 32 and 33, we'll see him living in fear of his brother Esau. We'll find Jacob's household in disarray. And I bring this to your attention because Jacob has not progressed to a point where he did not need Christ's righteousness. And that applies to all of us as well. We will never get to a point in our lives where we do not need the righteousness of Christ. If not for Christ's righteousness being credited to our account, we would not be justified. Our sins were credited to his account. His righteousness has been credited to ours. And so as we partake of the Lord's Supper, our standing in Christ is in a sense confirmed. As we partake of the cup, we're reminded that apart from Christ's righteousness, we have no hope. So as we partake of the bread, which represents the body that bore our sins, We are declaring our need for Christ's righteousness. He lived a perfect, obedient life, and we as sinners need that righteousness. But he took our sins upon him, and we receive his righteousness. So when we partake of the bread, we're saying that we need Christ and his obedience. And as we partake of the cup, which represents the new covenant in his blood, We're declaring our position in the new covenant community. We're saying that our filthy robes have been washed by the blood of Christ. And for that reason, we invite baptized believers who are members in good standing, whether here at Providence or at an evangelical church, to partake with us. When we say evangelical church, basically what we're saying is a church that preaches the same gospel that you hear here, that you've heard here. And if you belong to such a church and you can partake of the table at your church, we invite you to partake with us. But if you've been visiting with us for a while or plan to visit with us for a while, we ask that you speak with one of our elders before next time. And for all who are not going to participate today, and this includes many of our youth and many of our children. I ask that you take, you spend the next few minutes contemplating why you are left out as the elements are passing you by. If you're not trusting Christ by faith, then I implore you to call upon his name today. 
you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you believe in him, you will not be put to shame.